Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. For free resources and free messages, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us for more information at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. So Genesis 18, verse 16. Let's look to God first in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word this morning because we are a people, Lord, that need your word. We need light. We need direction. We need guidance. We need to see, Lord, the great hope that you put in front of us. And we have all of this in your word. So teach us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 18, verse 16. And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I know him, that he will command his house and his household after him, his children, and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord, to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. And the Lord said, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and spare the place for the fifty righteous which are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner, to slay the righteous with the wicked, and that the righteous should be as the wicked, that be far from thee. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. Peradventure there shall lack five of the 50 righteous. Wilt thou destroy the city for the lack of five? And he said, If I find there 40 and five, I will not destroy it. And he spake unto him yet again and said, Peradventure there shall be 40 found there. And he said, I will not do it for 40's sake. And he said to him, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, I'll speak. Peradventure there shall be 30 be found there. And he said, I won't do it. I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, Behold, now I've taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. Peradventure there shall be 20 found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for 20's sake. And he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I'll speak yet but this once. Peradventure 10 shall be found there. He said, I will not destroy it for 10's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Now, in our last study, we were greatly encouraged because we saw from verse 12, you remember, how Sarah was not at all strong in faith. That wasn't the picture we saw. We didn't see Sarah as a woman strong in faith there. She laughed at God's promise of having a son. And then we saw in verse 13 how God didn't let her get away with that laughter, with that unbelief, but God called Sarah to confess and to forsake her unbelief. And we saw in verse 15 how Sarah didn't go down that road. She didn't acknowledge her sin of unbelief, 
but she lied about it, and she claimed that she didn't laugh. And then we also saw why she did that. Why do you lie to God? And it says in verse 15 that she was afraid. So the picture we're left with in Genesis 18 is of Sarah that's very weak. She's weak in faith, and that's not encouraging for us. But what is encouraging for us is the picture we have of Sarah from Hebrews 11:11, 11, 11, where we read last week, through faith, Sarah herself received strength to conceive seed and was delivered of a child when she was past age because she judged him faithful who had promised. That was very encouraging for us because in Genesis 18, we saw Sarah who was in great need of faith. And in Hebrews 11:11, 11, 11, it shows us that Sarah changed. That's good. And she was finally strong in faith. She was no longer laughing at God's promises. She was dead serious in her confidence that there was nothing too hard for God. And even if that meant that a nearly 100-year-old Sarah was going to have a baby, that helps us find ourselves just like Sarah in Genesis 18. We find ourselves sometimes like that. We find ourselves sometimes doubting God, not really believing that God is in the process of making all things work together for good in our lives. We don't believe that all the time. And we find ourselves very much in the mode of, oh no, Lord, not that, instead of in the mode of, in all things, give thanks. So if there was a way back for Sarah from the, her laughing in unbelief and the sin of unbelief to being a person who was so strong through faith that she received strength to conceive, then there's a way back for us. And that's the lesson we get. Now, we've got in verse 16, the wonderful meal, the butter, the milk, the meat. It's very good. It's a very delicious non-kosher meal. So the meal's over now. The meal's been memorable. And it reminds me of my friend, thinking about that, my friend Dorothy, the Holocaust survivor from Poland. She kept kosher all of her life until the Nazis came into Poland, and her father told her, do whatever you need to do to stay alive. Just stay alive. So Dorothy became a devout Catholic. (laughs) And she memorized, she recites them to me, her prayers in Latin. And the other thing she did to not be detected as a Jew is she forced herself to eat Polish pork sausage. (laughs) which she got quite a liking for. And to this day, she's strict on her kosher diet until she goes into a Polish pork sausage store. (laughs) Well, these heavenly guests, they enjoyed the non-kosher meal of the dairy and the meat together. And in verse 16, we read that the men rose up. So we can see from verse 16, there's a strong determination now in these men when it says they rose up from thence and they looked towards Sodom. People really played fast and loose with God. You know, when they figured that God's not going to send anyone to hell. God's a God of love. But the determination that we see on these men here to go to Sodom, as they look towards Sodom, was dead serious. It was very serious. And no one should ever think that because God is loving that he's not going to send anyone to hell. No one should ever think that deception. And a very good way to see how serious God is about this matter is to look at the cross. Because it's at the cross where we see how God is dead serious about hell. Because God knows how horrible an eternal suffering is in hell. And so what did he do? He pays the ultimate price to keep everyone out of hell at the cross. So that price of the suffering and the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross 
You can say many things about it, but one thing is very sure. It was very serious, very grave. And the cross shows the dead seriousness of the love of God. Because we have the most famous verse in the Bible in John 3.16. But what's so interesting about John 3.16 is the context of it all. I mean, what it says before it gets to it. And in John 3.14, it starts off and the Lord Jesus Christ speaking to Nicodemus gives him the context before the great John 3.16 verse. And the context is, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. When you look at the context before John 3.16, there's a very, very important one word that tells it all, and it's leading up to John 3.16, and it's the word must that's found in John 3.14, where he said, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. When the Jewish people were bitten by the poisonous snakes because of their sin of unbelief, God gave them when what he told Moses a must-do remedy. He didn't say to the Jewish people, I see that you're dying from the poisonous snakes. The venom is already at work in you. I'm going to give you several remedies, which were all work perfectly fine, and it's your choice. You can choose whichever one you want. You choose this one, it'll work. It's up to you. You choose that one, you'll recover. Oh, many of them are available, like our medicine cabinet. <laughs> God did not do that in the wilderness. God gave the Jewish people one single must-do remedy, which was Moses quickly go make a brass snake and put it on a pole, lift it up, and the remedy is anyone who's dying from the poison would be healed if they looked at that serpent, that snake. That was God's must-do remedy. There was no other alternative remedy than that. That was the point of John 3.14 when he said, Moses had for the dying people only one must-do remedy. Do it, the person is healed. Don't do it, the person dies. Try another remedy, the person dies. It was just that simple. It was a must-do single remedy. That's why the Lord Jesus Christ said before John 3.16, as Moses lifted up the serpent, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And the one who told Moses to do this must-do serpent was the one who was telling Nicodemus that he must suffer and die in order to become the must-do remedy from hell. So the seriousness of saving a person from hell is the seriousness of God keeping a person from being sent to hell is the same seriousness that God has when he sends a person to hell who rejects the must-do remedy that he's provided. There's no other remedy. There's no other remedy to save a person from hell than the must-do remedy of coming to the Lord Jesus Christ is the only way, truth, and life. And so with a great sense of seriousness, these men in verse 16 turn their gaze That's what it says. They turn their gaze and they focus on Sodom. What's interesting is that the men in Sodom were totally unaware that all this was going on. They had no idea that heaven with imminent judgment was focused on them from heaven and their last opportunity to be saved was right there. It was imminent. They didn't know. And it's very interesting where it says, you notice in the verse there, it says, and Abraham went with them. That reveals something very interesting about Abraham. 
Abraham has done, when it says that, and Abraham went with them, what Abraham is doing is what it says in Colossians 3, 2, when it says, set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. You know, that word set in the Greek there in Colossians 3, 2 means to interest yourself, interest yourself in things above and not on things of the earth. So when it says that Abraham went with them, we see Abraham interesting himself in what interests God. And that's very interesting because when we read the Bible, you know, we're not just sitting down and saying, well, now I got a really good book. I'm going to sit here and see if I find out what's interesting to me. You know, I'm going to go, I don't like that book. I don't like that chapter. That's boring. You know, I'm going to go find something that's interesting, you know. That's not the purpose of reading the Bible. When we read the Bible, we don't look for what interests us. We look to set our interests on what God is interested in. And the Bible teaches us what God is interested in. So when we get into the Bible, we're getting into setting our interest on God's interest. And that's what Colossians 3.2 means when it commands us to set our affections or set our interests on things above. God is serious. God is serious about judgment and hell and saving people from hell. And when we set our interests on what God's interests are, then we take God's judgment and hell very seriously. And we take saving people from hell very seriously because God does. And so when it says that Abraham went with them, it speaks to us of how Abraham was setting his interest on what was of interest to God. Now, notice in verse 16, we're told that those who came were men. That's what it says. These were men. But in verse 17, we see that one of them speaks. And the one who speaks in verse 17 of these men is identified as the Lord. It says, and the Lord said. So there's the men, but one of them speaks. And it says, when he speaks, it's the Lord said. So God saw that Abraham was going with him and the other two. And God saw in Abraham that he was trying to set his interest in God's concerns. In verse 17, now the Lord asks a question. This is a question in verse 17 and 18. It's a question mark at the end of verse 18. And the question goes like this. He says, the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do, seeing Abraham's going to become great and mighty nation, all the nations there to be blessed in him? Question mark. So in verses 17 through 18, we see that God is asking a question. There's a question there, right? But that raises a question in us. And the big question is, who is God talking to? (laughs) He says, who is he talking to when he asks this question? He can't be talking to Abraham, you know, shall I hide from you? (laughs) That's not it. What he's really doing here in verses 17, he's debating. God's debating. So the question is, who is he debating with? (laughs) Who is he debating whether or not he's going to reveal his intentions to Abraham? So the question is, who is God talking to? Who is God debating with? And the answer is, God is asking himself the question, shall I hide from Abraham? God is debating with himself whether or not to reveal to Abraham what his intentions are. And we've seen this before in Genesis, because in Genesis 1.26, you remember, when God said, let us make man in our image, and you say, who's the us? You know, that's the God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, the Elohim, the triunity of God, the triune Elohim, Elohimity, <laughs> how's he like that, of God. When he says, um, 
Let us make man in our image. And then in Genesis 3.22, after the great catastrophe, the great tragedy of the sin, it says, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become as one of us to know good and evil. Now, lest he put forth his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever and so forth. So he said, the Lord has become as one of us. Again, the triunity of God. And then you remember that at the Tower of Babel, as we studied in Genesis eleven seven, where God says, go to, let us go down, and there confound their language. So in all of these instances, along with the passage we're looking at in Genesis 18, 17, and 18, we're privileged to be able to enter into the very throne room of God, of the triune God, and hear a conversation that's going on between God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And what we find here is that when this question is posed here, that there's an agreement. There's an agreement between the persons of the Godhead that what God is about to do should not be hid from Abraham. It should be revealed to Abraham. And then in this argument or question or debate, there's a justification for revealing to Abraham what God is about to do. And he said, look, Abraham, he's going to become a great and mighty nation. We need to show him. Because all the nations of the world are going to be blessed in Abraham, which refers to the Lord Jesus Christ coming as a man through the line of Abraham. He says, because of that, we should show him. We shouldn't hide this from him. We should reveal it. And third, because God says, we know Abraham. He's going to be very serious when it comes to his household. He's going to seriously rule his house. His house is going to honor God. They may not honor God when they leave his house, but in his house, they're going to honor God. And then God says, that just opens up the door for God to bring to Abraham the promises that he'd made to Abraham. That's what it means, that the Lord might bring upon Abraham. So the end of verse 19 The question has been asked, the question's been answered about whether or not to reveal to Abraham what he's going to do, and now, since the question's been asked and answered, in verse 20, okay, here it is, and now we're going to open up the envelope. (laughs) God says, we'll open it up, and and we'll read it to Abraham in verse 20, and it reads, this is it, Abraham, because there's a cry. You can't hear it. Nobody can hear it on earth, but I can hear it, and there is a cry. And this cry, Abraham, is coming from two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham, I'm going to reveal to you that this cry is great. And this cry is great that no one on earth can hear but me. But this cry is great, and he says, because there's sin. And there's something about their sin, Abraham. Their sin is grievous. And it's not just grievous, it's very grievous. That was the revelation. That was what was in the envelope. So again, from verse 20, we see that one of those visitors, again, he looks like a man, but he's not really a man. He's, verse 20, the one who's speaking to Abraham, we read, and the Lord said. And so now Abraham understands very clearly. He's got his eyes fixed. He goes, that one person there, that's God. That's really the Lord. He looks like a man. He's really the Lord. We know who that is. That's the Lord Jesus Christ. And so God reveals to Abraham that there's a cry that the earth doesn't hear, but God hears it. It's called the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah. The cry is great. And that's kind of interesting for us because we ask ourselves the question, how could there be such a loud cry and nobody on earth hears it, but God hears it? But it's true. It doesn't change the fact. It's true. The cry of Sodom and Gomorrah was great. And so at the end of verse 21, God explains what the cry was all about with the word grievous, very grievous. It reminds us 
about when the flood destruction happened on the earth. In Genesis 6, 6, we read something very similar to that when we studied that, where God says, I wished I hadn't done it. It says, it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him at his heart, is what it says. The sin of man put a great frown on the face of God. And it made God sit there and think and consider and say to himself, I wish I hadn't made man. I just wished I hadn't done it. And the words that God used at that time was that it grieved him in his heart. It was like a knife in his heart. It was a heartache, a very serious heartache, a very serious heart grief for God. So here in verse 20, when we read that God says their sin is very grievous, it's very, very uh, disturbing. So God says to Abraham, that in verse 21, God says to Abraham that he is personally going to uh, see for himself. He's going to look firsthand and he's going to see, is it really as he's hearing from the terrible cry? He says in verse 21, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which has come unto me. And if not, I'll know. Now, what is the cry that God heard? What is the cry that God heard? What was, what was the cry saying? You know, the first time we read about a cry coming up to God in his ears was in Genesis 4.10. You remember, after Cain killed his brother Abel, and then he distanced himself. God said, you know, where's Abel? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer is, no, you're your brother's brother. But he distanced himself. But when God asked Cain what he'd done, it said in Genesis 4.10, and he said, what hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. Oh, so Cain murdered Abel, and he thought that all finished. It's all done. And probably Cain buried Abel out of his hand, made a grave plot, couldn't see, so distinguishable. I'm sure he didn't put a cross on it, but anyway. And, <laughs> and he thought it's all finished now. But Cain could stop the sight of the bloodied up brother Abel from his eyes, but he could not stop the cry of Abel's blood into the ears of God. And God described it as the voice. God said, the voice of Abel's blood. And he said, the voice he heard, it was a loud voice. It was a clear voice. It was Abel's blood. And it was crying out from the ground into the ears of God. And the voice was crying for judgment. The voice was crying for justification. You know, justification is a word that has to do with balancing the balance in the books. You know, you justify the ledger. You know, justify the books. He says, look, there's a, God said in Genesis 9, 6, whoso sheddeth man's blood, boom, on this side of the balance, right? By man shall his blood be shed. So we have a justification. As he used to say that, and you look in the old English dictionaries in Scotland, and it says there that they give an example for justified. And it said, and the murderer was justified. And you think, oh, he walked away free. No, he was killed. That's what it meant. He was justified. In other words, the balance came back. So there's this cry. And it's very sobering. The sins that cry out into the ears of God. And it means our sins. In this case, Sodom and Gomorrah was homosexuality. It means that our sins cry out to God. And they cry out for judgment. And we have a lot of sins that are crying out. And therefore, there's like a cacophony of cries for each one of the sins, for each one of us. It's crying out to God for judgment. And the great power that's in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ is that it silences all those cries. 
It just silences them. All those cries, that's the wonder of it all. The blood of the Lord Jesus Christ silences all the cries of judgment because of our sin because the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ also speaks. It also speaks. And as it speaks, it silences all the other cries of sin because it speaks louder than the cries of all the sins. As it says in Hebrews 12, 24, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher Tom Cantor here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org. Or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at Tom Cantor, that's T-O-M-C-A-N-T-O-R, Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org, Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Do you have a heart for Israel and lost Jewish people in America? Then come work in Southern California as a full-time or volunteer missionary working with Tom Cantor in Israel Restoration Ministries, reaching lost Jewish people with their Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ. Hourly wage, 401k, health insurance, company car, and phone, and other amazing benefits. Call us, 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051, israelrestoration.org.